This is a Data Science Channel program from the Halijialu Data Science Institute. Visit us at ucsd.tv slash data-science to learn more about how data is shaping our future. Having these discussions that we're meeting as, as a collective to try and work through the kinds of issues that uh, are raised by these technologies that actually do have capabilities that are really quite different from what we saw three or four years ago even with uh, AI systems. Um, the, the sort of transformation that happened in a lot of ways in AI in the mid to late 90s was actually that as a community, we stopped trying very hard to build general intelligences. Uh, for the most part, we shifted much more to finding very narrow problems, optimizing the heck out of them. So all we want to do is find cats in our pictures. All we want to do is distinguish a wolf from a dog. All we want to do is uh, plan a route through a room. And we're not going to worry if a system can do lots of different things. We don't care if our system is multi-purpose. It can beat a human in Go. That's all we care about. And who cares that, you know, at the end of it, the human goes home and cooks dinner and the computer gets turned off, right? We didn't care because we were trying to build what we think of as narrow AI systems that were incredibly good better than human performance, at very specific tasks. And what we're really seeing, um, Jingwei made reference to artificial general intelligence and this, the claim coming, I'll, I'll do it as a claim, I'm not going to say that it is, but the claim coming out of the Microsoft group that GPT-4 is showing the sparks of it. I don't know what that means to say sparks of general intelligence, but the idea is that as we've seen these, mod, these large language models and other generative AI systems emerge, they are much more multi-purpose. They're no longer the kind of narrow, we know exactly what they're going to do and we can optimize and control their performance uh, in the ways that we're used to. They don't look as much like tools anymore. And this is raising a lot of ethical concerns, a lot of ethical questions. And so much of what I want to try to do here in the next few minutes is just raise some of these ethical issues and talk very briefly about some of the challenges um, that we're facing with these systems and the challenges with doing anything about them. Uh, because I think it's tempting to look at these and say, well, let's just not have them do the bad stuff. And I want to talk a little bit, no equations, I, I promise, um, about why it's so hard to have these systems do the kinds of things we want and not do the things we don't want. So I want to start, though, with, with a, a sort of very high-level, kind of quick um, discussion of something that may be coming to many of your minds, which is, okay, ethics, the ethical implications, that's just about what we do with the systems. Right? You might be thinking to yourself, ChatGPT, there's 175 billion parameters. Those parameters are numbers. The whole thing, it's just math. It's just code. Ethics doesn't have anything to do with code, you might be thinking. You might be thinking to yourself, all that matters is how we use that code. Okay? But the first thing I want to say is, um, I, want to get you to, I want to push back on that and get you to recognize that, in fact, technologies embody and implement values through this, the capabilities that they provide, through the affordances that they provide. You know, you can think of this as when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And so if I give you a hammer, you might say, well, there's nothing ethical about a hammer. It's only what I use the hammer to do. But in fact, there is a sense of value associated with a hammer. Namely, it says it's a good thing to pound on stuff. Okay? And so we can think about, in the case of ChatGPT, what are the values, the capabilities that are provided and the values that are advanced by those capabilities? Right? We can think about the kinds of user interfaces. What are the things, uh, the 
safety, and I'll put it in scare quotes, that uh, OpenAI has built as a layer on top of ChatGPT, where it will say, I'm sorry, I'm not going to answer those kinds of questions. Except then you ask it to tell me a fictional story involving the thing that it says it won't answer, and it'll answer it for you. Right? So it's very easy to get around their safety rules, precisely because the safety rules are essentially um, just looking to see, uh, they're essentially just pattern matching on the prompt. Okay? And so the user interfaces, the conditions in which we deploy these systems, who gets access to these systems, these are also promoting some values, advancing some values, harming others. And perhaps most importantly, there's what we call the success criteria, the success conditions. For ChatGPT, success is it predicted the correct next word. Success is not it told me something true. Okay? That's just, it just does not care. There's nothing built into the system that says you should tell people true things. All that's built into the system is you should predict the most likely next word. Now, thankfully, the corpus of text and images that it's drawing from is mostly true stuff because we humans, this may sound crazy, but we humans tend not to lie to each other. And so, as a result, it's trained mostly on true things, but it will very confidently make things up. Justin gave us the example of the the papers. Uh, A colleague of mine was sort of curious last December and said the course that that she was planning for winter quarter, she said, give me 20 readings that I can give to my students. And it very confidently gave 20 readings for this class. And the person looked and said, my God, these papers are amazing. I can't wait to read these. Zero of 20 existed. Every single one was made up. They were attributed to real people. So they, it got the authorship right. These are people who work in this field. Every one of the papers was made up in terms of the title. Sort of like the acute feline laryngitis. Um, which now I'm curious if it's actually a thing. Um, so this is a, a persistent problem. It's not designed to succeed at giving us information or truth. It's designed to succeed at giving us the most probable completion. And so that's advancing certain values, not others. And so when we think about ethics and technology in general, you should always be asking whose values are being advanced or harmed by which uses. It's not just about the code. The code's amazing, it's beautiful, but the ethical considerations require us to think about the people. Who is benefiting from this? In what ways? How might we shape the uses in order to ensure that We're, for example, advancing the benefits for the most people as opposed to for the very few, which raises lots of questions about how these things are being deployed and used. So I want to start the sort of deeper dive, though, on generative AI systems. And and I'm going to use that as a general term. So ChatGPT is a kind of large language model, which is a kind of generative AI system. It is generating, in this case, text. But you could think about Dolly or Stable Diffusion, which are image generation systems. You can think about much of the deepfake technology and software, which can be audio generator. Um, With about, nowadays, it's down to about five to 10 seconds of audio. Somebody can produce a uh, audio of you saying anything they want, and it is not distinguishable to the human ear that it is artificial. It's only about five to 10 seconds of, of audio of you. So if there's a YouTube video of you out on the web, somebody can create indistinguishable to a human audio of you saying anything they want. That should terrify you. Um, These kinds of generative AI systems are now moving into the realm of video. Video has sort of been the last frontier that they've not been good at. They're now starting to get 
okay at five to 10 second clips. You might be thinking about deep fakes and saying, well, but those are video. Deep fakes take advantage of the fact that it's not entirely generated. They're just manipulating certain parts of the, of the video. Um, this is from scratch generated video that is close to indistinguishable to the human eye and ear. Okay? Uh, so everyone kind of expects that within 12 to 18 months, we're going to be able to, you'll be able to generate five minute clips of video uh, that you can't tell a machine produced. So you might be immediately thinking, this is terrible, just shut all these things down. I do think it's important to recognize that there are some benefits. There's no question that these technologies can enhance creativity and expression. One of the great uses that people are already putting the GPT and other large language model systems to is for proofreading and editing and summarizing. And they're pretty good at those kinds of tasks. If you are not a native English speaker and you want to um, write something that you think your English is not great, ChatGPT will automatically turn that into entirely grammatical English. If you aren't comfortable writing professional emails or professional letters, it will, you, you sort of write what you think, which is not very good, it will turn it into very good text. Uh, if you think about the image generation systems, they are already being used in very innovative ways by artists who can explore the possibility space for creative expression in ways that they aren't able to do when they have to generate it all by themselves. Because one part of creativity is coming up with a new idea. Another part of creativity is being able to recognize amazing ideas when you see them. And as Jingbo said, one way of thinking about this is these systems can generate a lot of things, and then the human judgment comes in not in the creation, but in this discernment to say, this is exceptional, that's not. So the ways in which people are partnering with these systems, I think, is leading to an increase and an advance in the kind of creativity and expression that people are able to put forward. Um, Another really important value that is under-discussed and not, I think, is is sort of coming very quickly on the research side and at certain companies, there's a lot going on behind the wall along these veins, but is generating more useful simulated data. So Jingbo mentioned that you could use health records. UCSD Health has a large number of health records. I do some AI work on biomedical data. I do not want access to UCSD Health's records. I don't want that because then I'm in trouble if something happens to those. I'd much rather have somebody say, here's a whole bunch of simulated data about fake people who don't exist, but it's completely realistic. I'd love that because then if somebody steals my computer, I'm not stressing, I'm stressing out, but not because I lost access control of a bunch of data. I don't have to satisfy HIPAA because these aren't real people. And we haven't been able to do that. Producing realistic simulated data has been a kind of holy grail for a lot of people in machine learning um, that we just haven't been able to get good enough simulations on. That's starting to change with the emergence of generative AI systems. And that has the possibility to enable real advances in healthcare, in finance, in many different sectors in ways that are actually privacy-preserving, precisely because people can do those advances without needing access to any real data. They can run it on simulated data and get good answers. So I think that this actually is potentially a massive benefit of these systems. We tend to think about the ways in which generative AI systems seem to be privacy-invading, and I'll talk about that on the next slide, Um, but they actually have the possibility of making it so that we can be even more protected in our, in our private data, because now we don't have to be sending data over email. Right? We can send simulated data, not real data. 
I do think we should also recognize um, there is a benefit in certain tasks being able to be outsourced to technology. Um, I really like that uh, I have a spell checker on my computer. That's a good thing. That has made my life better. Have, you know, you, there were people who were sort of threatened by spell check and by grammar checking. That's going to end editors. There will never again be editors. Well, that isn't what's happened. Instead, it's just a lot easier to write because I don't have to waste cognitive energy on some of these things. Um, I like having an automatic transmission car. I'll admit it, right? Um, some technology makes our life easier because there's some things that I just don't want to have to do. Now, the problem, of course, as we'll see on the next, as we'll discuss on the next slide, is um, there are a lot of things that these systems are doing that is not just eliminating or reducing the amount of menial labor, but I think it's important to recognize the benefits of some tasks I'm perfectly fine outsourcing to a computer to help me with. That one's a short slide. This one's the longer slide, um, which is thinking about the ethical challenges. So obviously the most obvious one, the one that leaps to enormous numbers of people, uh, pretty much everyone's mind, is that these systems have the capability to massively increase the scale and magnitude of harms that are done to people, both on the intentional side, disinformation. I mean, I can now, you can now, we thought the scale of disinformation we saw in 2020 and 2016 was problematic in the elections here in the United States. We, None of us are prepared for what's coming in 24. It's going to be a disaster, I predict. And I'm sorry to be depressing on a lovely Wednesday morning, um, but it is an enormous challenge uh, that we are facing. Um, even the unintentional ones. Uh, we have cases where things are being presented, those hallucinations. It's, it's cute and funny when it's uh, hallucinating a, an academic paper that I can do a Google search and recognize, whoops, that doesn't exist. Uh, there was a newspaper report just a few days ago about uh, one of the systems hallucinating a sexual assault report of a law professor. In fact, the article that it was drawn from was the law professor helping to support the victims of sexual assault. But the long, large language model hallucinated it as the professor was the perpetrator of sexual assault. And this is potentially being presented as truth, even by people who are just they're trying to use these things just to give me a summary but then all of a sudden the summary is giving a hallucination. And I think what this really raises is the enormous problem of these things being an, an ethical challenge of these being deployed on us as unwitting, unconsenting subjects. Okay. These systems are being deployed at a society level scale without any of us agreeing to them being deployed. We are the subjects of, ma of a massive experiment. And every time you use ChatGPT, every time you use BARD, the Google uh, search uh, that is connected to their uh, back end. Every time you're using these systems, they are collecting your data. They're collecting your prompts. They're collecting whether you liked the answers. They are adapting. Every case that somebody has come up with where they showed ChatGPT saying something silly, within about two hours after it gets publicized, ChatGPT no longer makes that error. And it's not because it's learning really fast. It's because part of what OpenAI is doing, and Google does it, and they all do the same thing, is when something gets noticed as this was dumb, they fix it on the back end, sometimes in an ad hoc way. We are the subject of a massive experiment happening right now. And I lived in Pittsburgh during the time that self-driving cars were being deployed and tested on the streets there without the consent of the citizens. And I saw how upset people were about that. The same sort of thing is happening now worldwide. We are being used as subjects in a massive experiment without our consent. And I think that's an enormous ethical challenge. Um, another problem is who owns all of this? Who owns the training data? 
All of those, every website that's out there and publicly available, that's now training data. Is that fair use? That would be the legal question. Is it ethical to be accessing all of this? Who owns the products? We're seeing this right now with artists and the image generation systems that are being built. Who owns the images that are being produced by these systems? It's also ownership of the technology itself. Uh, As most of us who work in this field have found, um, these systems are very closed. Uh, You know, Jing referred to chat uh, GPT-4, where we really have no clue what's going on with it. We don't know anything about it. We can't access it. OpenAI is no longer open. We might think, oh, okay, we'll just open source this. That's what some folks at Stanford did with what was called Alpaca. And then they immediately said, wait a second, maybe we shouldn't be open sourcing this incredibly powerful technology and just throwing it out in the world so anybody can use it. Maybe that was a mistake. So we have this tension between people wanting to get these systems out in the world so they can be improved, creating harms along the way, And then we don't know how to have recourse because nobody knows what's going on with a lot of these systems. We don't know technically which things were defensible errors and which were mistakes. There's the general problem of what we call de-skilling, where you lose skill because you stop doing things. So I'm happy to de-skill in terms of spell check. It's okay with me that I I have technology helping me out with it. I'm not okay if airline pilots de-skill on their ability to land a plane. Right now, autopilots are better than almost all commercial airline pilots in almost all settings. And I don't mean that to denigrate or critique the skill of commercial aviation pilots. It is to say how good autopilots actually are. We do not allow planes to land on autopilot in this country precisely because we want to make sure that aviation, uh, that basically pilots maintain the skill of landing and takeoff. Because those are the two things that you have to be able to do as a pilot. If the technology fails, we've got to be able to get the plane down safely. And so we don't want to have de-skilling of pilots in terms of their ability to land a plane. So we have to think seriously about what are the skills we are going to lose by the widespread adoption of these. It won't just be for the menial tasks. It will be for creative tasks. There's at least one advertising company that has publicly said that they want to go from a team of 50 to a team of five. And they want to do that because they think... Ad copy is going to be easy to generate. We'll just have somebody who can say if it's good or bad. And chat GPT or some other large language model combined with an image generation will generate 5,000 ads. And so the job of those five people will simply be to say good, bad, good, bad. That's changing the skills that are required potentially in problematic ways. And I think it also calls into question um, sort of what we might think of as the nature of our humanity. Uh, We like to think of ourselves as special. That language is one of the things that distinguishes us from the non-human animals. Interesting questions there. One of the things these systems have shown us is that our language is a lot less special than we thought it was. We all like to think that we're geniuses coming up with brand new ideas every time. And what these systems have really taught, I think, many of us is our language is a lot more formulaic. It's a lot more ritualistic than we think. If I said, it's a beautiful day, I'm going to go sit outside. Outside. Pretty much everyone's got audible. It's a rainy day. I'm going to go sit. Right? That's formulaic. That's, that's what these systems are doing. They're picking up on the fact that we are very predictable in our speech. And this, I think, is an interesting challenge to the way we think of ourselves as humans, to the special nature of us as humans. If language is a lot less special than we think, then that raises questions about are we as special as we think? 
Obviously, dogs don't build universities. There are, you know, <laughs> the proof is in what we can do. On the other hand, it, I think, raises a lot of interesting ethical questions about how exactly we are different from, say, non-human animals. Now, it doesn't entirely do it. Uh, ChatGPT is, is really bad at causal reasoning, despite um, the sorts of things that uh, we, you sometimes see. And so I think it's important to recognize that there still are a lot of skills we have that these systems don't. Uh, but it, it really challenges, I think, our identity as special. So what can we do? I'll, I'll go quickly here, because the short answer is there are no good answers here. And I'm sorry, again, to be depressing on a, a beautiful day. Um, it is too late to have what we call dissemination restrictions. The, the horse is out of the barn, the genie's out of the bottle. These systems are not going away. We can't stop them from being out there. Um, we can slow them. We can restrict in some ways, but we can't stop it. Uh, there was recently an open letter that said we should pause development for six months. I read that letter and I thought to myself, to be blunt, what's the magic that's going to happen in six months? That's not going to solve any of the challenges on the previous page. The idea was, let's have wait for six months and we'll figure this out. We're not going to, because these are deep, intractable problems that we need to be wrestling with to try to understand what it is that we can do with these systems to have them benefit all as opposed to benefiting just a few. And so a pause in development is not going to do it. We can't put the genie back in the bottle. These are multi-use systems. They are starting to be more general in their intelligence. And so um, putting prior restrictions on use is incredibly difficult. Like, you know, as we said, you can say, oh, you know, don't say things like, to use one of the horrific examples that has been used, um, you, know, you should not be a Holocaust-denying AI system. And yet, if you ask it to, tell a, to, to write a play about a Holocaust denier, it will do that and say all the things that, that uh, these, we think these systems ought not be uh, advancing. Um, so you can't really do prior regulation because of how multi-use the systems are. There will always be ways around the regulation. Um, you might say, well, we can do social norms, whether on the development side or the use side. Maybe we all just agree that we're not going to do certain kinds of things. Um, CRISPR is actually an interesting example of this uh, because when CRISPR emerged, what quickly developed was a social norm amongst the biotechnology community that we will not use these things on the human genome. We've known how to use CRISPR on the human genome since the very beginning. And yet there's only one documented case of somebody doing research applying CRISPR to the human genome. And that person was immediately essentially excommunicated from the research community and ultimately ended up in jail. So social norms can be very powerful. The problem is that there are tremendous economic incentives to be a bad actor here. And so I think we can make some progress on social norms, but they're not going to fix or address the challenges on the previous stage. And you might say, well, let's just wait and see what goes wrong. <laughs> and people are going to die. That's the scale of harm we're talking about. We can't just wait for the harms to happen and then fix them after the fact. That's also not an acceptable answer. So the best hope we have is to actually try to do all of these. So um, I think that that's what we're already starting to see. Right? We're already starting to see companies pulling back on the, the technology that they put forward. You have companies like, for example, Anthropic coming out and saying, we are not going to make ours publicly available to just anybody because we think that's the wrong thing to do. Right? Um, we're going to make it available only under certain conditions and only to selected users. We saw the Bing rollout happen very quickly. Google's BARD rollout is happening in a much slower fashion. So we're already seeing slowing 
in the dissemination. We're already seeing some pausing in development in the sense of things not being put out quite as quickly. Uh, there is real talk of how we can do some kinds of regulation or control, some talk about the kinds of recourse that should be available. If a system says this person you know, is, is guilty of sexual assault when they're not, what is, who can they sue? What is the legal recourse that's available? And we're seeing, I think, the emergence of social norms within the community. Um, it can be a little bit scary if you're sort of not in the community because you might wonder, do any of the people at these companies talk to one another? And I can tell you they all talk to one another. And they all talk to people who are thinking about these things outside of their companies, whether in academia, government, the nonprofit, civil society space. All the conversations that are happening here, they are happening every single day amongst the people also building these systems about how do we do this better. And that's maybe the thing that gives me the most hope for the future is I think that unlike some technologies where it's taken years for people to recognize the ethical challenges, I think we already see it after just a few months. Now, harms have been done. Harms will continue to occur. But I am cautiously optimistic that as a community, both academic communities such as here, the broader community of people working on these technologies and generative AI systems, that we can make real progress moving forward so that we can minimize the harms and maximize the benefits. Because I do think these could be transformative, but only if we work collectively. So that's, that's the hopefully optimistic ending. Um, and with that, thank you. And uh, we'll move to the next phase. <laughs>